from the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn about movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And today, we're talking 1986 Frog Dreaming, which was also known in the United States as The Quest, and in the UK as Go Kids, written by Everett DeRoche, directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith, and starring Henry Thomas, Tony Barry, Tamsin West, and Katie Manning, among others. This episode will contain spoilers, so consider yourself warned. Oh, Rafe. I'm excited about this conversation. I know you have been <laughs> eagerly waiting to do this movie since long before we actually started uh, this podcast. It's true. It's true. Before we start that conversation, uh, one of the things that I'm always curious about, since it has been a little while since you and I have spoke, have you watched anything that you would recommend to me or the listeners? I have. I've watched a couple of things. First of all, I revisited uh, Scott Pilgrim. Versus, oh yeah, the, which I love uh, uh, that uh -huh. movie. It was just a kind of a lazy Saturday night, Sunday night type. Let me throw this on because I'd been making references to it. And my my girlfriend uh, had not seen it, so it was a chance to introduce her to the world of Scott Pilgrim. Uh, but I, I also uh, watched Disney's Strange World with my son, which is a fantastic movie, father and son dynamic to to watch together with him. And I have to say. Um, I know it was kind of considered a box office bomb for Disney, but I enjoyed it. You know, it's not high Disney, but it was fun, and I, I really liked it. I think Disney doesn't know how to market those kinds of movies. You look at some of the other films like that they put out, like Atlantis and Treasure Planet and such, and I think they just don't know what to do when they get that kind of movie on their hands. I agree with everything that you just said. Uh, we watched it, watched it on the 2nd of January, really enjoyed it, thought it was yeah, fine. I like the term high Disney because it does make sense, right? Like it's there there are no big musical numbers or no princesses. You're probably not going to see much strange world uh, merchandise out there, which is a shame, right? Because as role players, uh, strange world is a perfect role playing game. Like if you were to if we were in the future to do something along the line like pulp adventure movies, you know, just go really single solid genre film and just sure. go, Pulp, I'd probably throw that in there uh, really early on. I'd even argue that it could be a one crazy night type movie because it takes place yeah. in a very confined amount of time. Yeah. No, I, I, would, I wouldn't have an issue with that. So maybe we should not talk anymore about it just in <laughs> case we throw that in there in about a year or so. Uh, uh, and yeah, then I else? watched a really interesting uh, Western from 2005 uh, called The Proposition. And I, I watched it because it was picked for my other podcast, uh, I Have Not Seen This, which, which is back. Had a new episode come out last week uh, with Seven, and then uh, which I talked about last time we recorded. And then uh, this episode comes out this week. It'll actually be out before this episode that we're recording right now by a few days. It's an interesting film. I won't say it's a fantastic film, uh, because the premise of that podcast, for anybody who hasn't heard it, is that the guest picks the movie. I don't get a say in the matter. So it was one that I was introduced to, but had not seen before. Yeah, I'd never heard of it until um, about a week ago when I got a copy of it in Steelbox. I went to Goodwill. Was I always love going to Goodwill and flipping through their DVDs and seeing if there's something that I, I haven't seen before. Found the Steelbox version of it and went, well, it's got Guy Pearce in it. Sold. Right. I grabbed it and it's just sitting on my shelf. I'm very curious to hear your podcast about it because that'll let me know whether or not I need to watch that sooner rather than later. <laughs> it is not the movie you think it is. That's that's the that's the general uh, uh, summation of the discussion we had. <laughs> Does, is Guy Pearce in it? He is. Well, that's a, the only thing I know about it. So the fact that it's a Western is kind of like, okay, cool. <laughs> what about you? What have you been watching since we last uh, recorded I've watched a lot, but as far as new movies to me, uh, I went to the theaters, you know, um, Fathom Events do these great things where, you know, you get one or two days, and I thought Shin Godzilla, or Shin Gojira from a couple years back was a masterpiece, it's probably my favorite Godzilla movie, and I love Godzilla films, and so when I heard that Shin Ultraman was coming out, even though I'm not particularly familiar with Ultraman and its series, uh, I thought, well, I'm definitely going to go see that. 
the only Ultra series I am familiar with was Ultra Q, which was Japan's take on The Twilight Zone, which I highly recommend to anyone who, if that sounds even remotely interesting to you, find it. It's Actually, you can get the Blu-rays really cheap. Uh, great series. It, measured Twilight Zone, but with Kaiju. Great. Hmm. Fantastic. That um, sounds interesting. <laughs> the movie was interesting. Uh, it felt like a big screen adaptation of Power Rangers, and I know that there have been several of those, uh, and I've seen at least one of them. I'm I'm not a huge fan of that either, but, you know, it was a thing to do in the 90s. Um, right. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. I, for John Carpenter's 75th birthday, which happened a couple of days ago, I watched one of the two John Carpenter films I hadn't seen yet, which was Escape from L.A. Can you believe I had not seen Escape from L.A.? So Yes and no. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and I'd heard so many bad things about it, I thought, well, I'm not going to watch it. And quite a few of those bad things are perfectly correct. Uh, but the thing that really blew me away, and I thought it was a really kind of a, a goofy, fun film, and I, I really did enjoy it. The crazy thing about the film is so much of the plot involves around discussing the new nation's capital, which had been moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, which is the town that I currently live in. Right. So there's a lot of discussion about Lynchburg in that film, which <laughs> just is weird. Uh, and finally, I finally got around to seeing Nope, uh, which I had wanted to do since it came to the theaters, and, and I had been foiled two or three times uh, in an attempt to go see it, and one of which was getting COVID. So, like, on the night I was supposed to to see it. So uh, that was a weird experience. But, I, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed the film. I, I can't talk about it without spoiling stuff. So Nope. <laughs> it's uh, very difficult. I will say it is the creepiest trailer I've ever seen for a movie. Um, everything that they show in the trailer ticked those boxes in things that make me hate extraterrestrial movies. Um, so when we eventually maybe talk about E.T., uh, maybe I'll talk about Nope and the correlations between the two of them. <laughs> yeah, I I loved the trailer. Uh, I, I, I'm so far... Um uh, Jordan Peele has been hit or miss for me. I really liked Get Out. I did not care for Us as much. I thought it was kind of a weaker follow-up story. And so I was like, well, where's Nope going to fall on that spectrum for me? And there was one shot in the trailer in particular that I just – because it didn't fit in the trailer. And I was like, what is this? I, I hope the movie explains this. And the movie did explain that. And so that right there I found satisfying. I enjoyed the movie. But you're yeah. right. It's almost impossible to talk about without getting into spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I can describe it in one word, and uh, that unfortunately would spoil it for everybody. And that is the film that it's essentially uh, an homage to. But yes. Yeah. So those are the films that I, I've seen that I at least would recommend if you haven't seen it. So yeah, Shin Ultraman, Nope, Escape from L.A., definitely worth uh, checking out. Awesome. Well, we are not here to talk about those movies today, although I, I suspect we could very easily, especially with, uh, with three of the films that we were just talking about. But uh, we are here to talk about The Quest or Frog Dreaming or Go Kids or whatever title you want to go. We, we did talk with Brian Trenchard Smith about the title of the movie uh, when we got to talk with him, which is why we're talking about this. We, we did kind of forego the regular I pick, you pick kind of thing. And I do want to point out, Drew, We've done this twice. We've twice we have bypassed the you pick, I pick type thing. And both times has been on my pick, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been between my yes. pick and your pick. Yes. It's a uh, so that there we it's, go. It's a third. That's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. So Drew, we always start with the elevator pitch, uh, which is just a simplified version of the media's plot. So I'm getting in the elevator now. What is your pitch? How do you describe this movie? Uh, yeah, the quintessential 80s kid tries to solve a mystery of a spooky lake. I mean, that's that's your elevator pitch. It's a quick elevator, by the way. It is. And I could probably throw in the terms Australia and Henry Thomas. Yes, so, Henry Thomas. You know, who I, I think it is. And it's not just that Henry Thomas was the quintessential 80s kid. Right. Uh, Sean Astin could also be actually, no, let's face it. The Corys were the quintessential 80s yes. kids. But um, it's that Cody Walpole as a character is the quintessential 80s kid, which means that he's an orphan. He is uh, independent. He is self-sufficient, like he and and brave and like unflappable. Right. And and kind of like future lady killer. Also, uh, I wrote down where's where's my note? Uh, know it all, fiercely independent, courageous to a fault. Yeah. Well-connected, because he knows everybody. Uh, yeah. Well, it is a small town. It is. Like, it, like they, they make a point to basically say, you can sit at one point of the town and look down the road, and you can see where the town ends. Right. But agreed. And, and what I like about the character is these qualities 
in a modern character might be seen as as sort of like um like too perfect but all of them ratcheted up to 11 in the way that make him a flawed character which i think is important because the movie doesn't work if he's too good at everything put a pin in that because i'm going to counter that in a couple of minutes very well. I'm looking forward to that counter. All right. So uh, before we get to the question where I'm going to counter that, uh, why did you choose this movie, Drew? <laughs> well, Rafe, you and I were going to choose this. You and I had a lot of conversations about whether or not we were going to choose this movie before. It's kind of behind the scenes. We chose this movie because Brian Trenchard Smith was more than kind to discuss both this and BMX Bandits with us. And it makes so much sense sure. to discuss this movie following that interview than it would to do it, which was what we were planning either as a special episode towards the end of the first season or maybe not at all. So, like, it's come up, and I think this film covers some really interesting questions about what a Kids on Bikes movie is. Sure. And uh, we could probably talk about that in in, uh, just a moment. Or we could do it now. I'm uh, Ray, sure think... we will get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, do you think this is a kids on bikes movie? Uh, I do not think this is a kids on bikes movie. Uh, I mean, it is. It, it, it's the same argument that we have had uh, as we've discussed this. As you mentioned, we've we've had numerous conversations about this movie, and I don't think it's a kids on bikes movie for one because it really is only one kid. I mean, you do have the sisters that Cody hangs out with, Wendy and Jane, uh, and they come in every once in a while, but they aren't really integral to the plot until. Almost the film's climax, at which point it it, kind of even cracks me up. I I did write down when Cody asks for help, you know, like, how bad is it when Cody gets to a point that he has to ask for help? But mostly I don't feel like it's a kids on bikes movie because I think Cody is too perfect. I think being, as I said, he's, you know, a know-it-all, he's fiercely independent, he's courageous to a fault, he's well-connected, he doesn't need Anybody, with the exception of going to get some information from, you know, obviously looking for Charlie Pride, but then he also goes to uh, Kaufman, uh, just another, like, let's just throw it in. Like, it felt like a gaming campaign where Kaufman isn't established anywhere in the movie, and then suddenly it's just like, there he is, and Cody's like, There's oh, hey, Mr. Kaufman. An, ex- you know? an expert, yeah. Right. Uh, it felt like a Game Master type thing to throw in. So I Read. don't feel like it's a very good representation of kids on bikes movie. Now, Cody definitely has the agency uh, about the story, but it's it's like he's not – like I look at the other movies that we've watched and you look mm. at like Super 8 where they're trying to figure out what's going on with the town or you look at Goonies where they're on a treasure hunt to try to save their homes and – Cody has the agency, but he's also just doing this because he wants to know more about something that nobody else cares about. Right. So I don't think it's a very good Kids on Bikes movie. Yeah, interesting. I disagree with you. Of course. But only just. Um, <laughs> the reason that I wanted to – I one, because I wanted to be – I love this movie as a kid, and I, I wanted to be Cody Walpole. But I feel like this is a very good example of a kid venture film, right? It's a, a – different subgenre. I feel like the kid venture kids on bikes is a subgenre of the kid venture adventure series. Sure. Uh, this is a kid on bike film. It does have a specific location that the plot revolves around. Uh, it does have more than one kid, but you are c- completely correct. They are not integral to the plot until the third act, but the kids do have the agency. So I feel like it is, but only just so the that's... the other argument that I'll bring up, and again, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you will agree with me, but only just as you just said, is I, I couldn't help but when I watched it this time for the podcast, thinking about the conversation we had with Brian Trenchard Smith that he didn't set out to make kids movies; he made adventure movies with kids, and I mm-hmm. think the perfection of Cody Walpole is almost indicative of that. He's not a kid; he could very well have been. Uh, a late teen, he could have been a young adult and had all of those same qualities. There's nothing to, especially because his guardian is so hands off in raising mm-hmm. him, which is an element about the story I actually really like. Um, right, yeah. But because his guardian is so hands off, Cody is so independent. He's he's not really a kid. He can get anywhere he needs to. He doesn't have to sneak around. We don't have the scene from uh, now and then where they're trying to break into the grandmother's attic, you know, type thing. Cody would have just walked into the house and pulled down the stairs and walked up the stairs, you know? You're right, 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 right. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's true. Uh, also, one of the things that's interesting about this film is there are no antagonists at all. Correct. Um, like, there's just just none whatsoever. Yeah, I guess, I'd argue that the sheriff is almost an antagonist, but but barely. Right. He, in the same way that the sheriff from the Bandits was an antagonist, in that an authority figure had to be present in the film, uh, but like they are entirely inconsequential for the most part and for folks who have not seen this movie and and the elevator pitch wasn't enough small australian village there's a watering hole they discover they find a dead body they don't know what caused the dead body maybe he was scared to death there's a legend about something being in this lake uh and cody sees something in the lake and and feels like there's a, a creature in it what drives him to this to the point of risking his own life to find the secret of this this lake is not really explained, but right. we do know that um, Cody was orphaned. He is being raised by his dad's best friend. Apparently, I was I last time I watched it for this podcast, it was with the commentary on, and in the original script, it's discussed that Gaza was um, Cody's father's friend in the Vietnam War. So, mm, okay, which is a really interesting twist and I, I kind of would have liked to have learned a little bit more about that I kind of felt like they were military buddies I did kind yeah. of get that vibe to it but they didn't explain Vietnam War so interesting yeah. alright Drew you have wanted to, to, to do this movie forever so I, we're treating it as if it is your movie even though it's not sure so when did you watch this for the first time uh, it came out on HBO in the United States in I'd say either late 86 or early 87 so I was a about nine or ten years old when it came out, and so I watched it. You know, if, if for anybody who grew up in in you know the pre-streaming HBO, when they would get a new show, it would probably the new movie would get played like at least once a day, if not two or three times a day, and Kids Fair would get played even more, especially in the morning. So I remember going over to my friend's house, and the TV would always be on, even if you weren't watching, and this movie was always playing. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, I remember. Even when it wasn't playing, I still wanted to watch it. I would check it out from the video store so much so that the the clerk at Video Etc. in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, gave me the movie poster. So I had the poster up in my in my room as a kid growing up. Oh, nice! Love How about that. you, Rafe? When did you first watch it? Uh, I first watched this about two years ago. Uh, when a friend of mine uh, was talking about kids on bikes movies with me and recommended that I watch this one because I had never seen this film before. Oh, that was you. That's right. That was you. (laughs) Yeah, I I had never heard of this movie before. I had never seen it. Uh, You sold me on it uh, on a couple of different terms. One, that I'm doing a podcast called Have Not Seen This. Here's a movie you haven't seen. Two, uh, uh, it has Henry Thomas, which is, you know, of course, as you said, from E.T., who is, you know, a very iconic 80s kid. And here's another Kids on Bikes. I liked – I love E.T. I love Cloak and Dagger. So I I was into Henry Thomas. So sure, let's give this a go. Yeah. You know – you said that you hadn't seen this. It seems like a lot of people haven't seen this. Yes. Looking at um, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, for the tomato meter, there's it. I've never seen a. It's not a zero percent. Right. It's a non-existent percent because there's only one review on the website for this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a well-known film by any yeah. means. In fact, I, I suspect we'll have a lot of listeners. Hopefully they've they've paused this, or we haven't really spoiled anything yet. But hopefully they will they will put this on pause. Uh, thank you for the download, but put this on pause. <laughs> watch the movie. It's on YouTube. That's where I watched it. I know yeah. Drew has his his copy with the director's commentary, but I watched it on YouTube. Um, it's not a terribly long movie. Uh, no, it's then, quick too, and I think that's one of its saving graces. As yeah, well. and then come back to us for the actual conversation. But it's it is on. Uh, uh, it does have an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes of of fifty two percent. Right. So I that's yeah. that's that's you liking it and me not liking it right there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 52%. So Drew, we always talk about our, our movies in the terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. What are the highlights? What are the bad bits? What are the worst bits? So let's go ahead and get started in that direction. Give me something good about the quest or frog dreaming. I think this is incredibly, and, and I'm not using, I'm not being hyperbolic. I think this is an incredibly well directed and edited movie i agree the opening scene which i will not spoil is so well put together it it creates a level of intensity that feels like a kid's horror movie and you don't it's it's the kind of film they don't make anymore uh or at least haven't made i feel like we're getting back to 
kind of scary kids movies, but not like, say, a Stranger Things, which is sort of um scary teen movie. This is like kind of a scary kids movie. Yeah. And ultimately, it's not, but it has scenes that are um a little disturbing, which are which is I enjoyed. So I think the uh, direction editing it, it actually won an uh, Australian Film Institute award for uh, editing. Uh, yeah, well, and editing was one of the positives that I have about it. I specifically mm-hmm. like, and it would have been a very easy gimmick for them to do early on and then lose over the course of the movie, and they don't. And that is the way they intercut animal life with the film. Right. That it's it's not – so you have the, the first time we are at this pond and we see something happening and we don't we don't know what it is. And it's intercut with like wildlife looking at what's happening and frogs jumping off of their lily pads and that kind of stuff. And I always can do with 100% less snakes. Uh, right. But I, I like that, that they kept that going throughout the film. And I've seen movies where it's done too much. I've seen movies where it's cut out, you know, but by, by the time you get 10 minutes into the movie, they just stop doing it. But I feel like they do a really good job here of keeping it an even mix of reminders that this is wildlife. This is, this is a, a national park, as is brought up several times, more for a humorous effect. But um, <laughs> it, it, it is a nice reminder of the wildlife side of this area that Cody is living in. Yeah, I mean, it's Australia where everything can kill you. And uh, or at least that's the the reputation that Australia seems to have outside of Australia. But it does feel like a wild location. And you're right, the editing with those animal shots, which Treachard Smith explained in the commentary was all filmed at a, at a, at a zoo, essentially, and then edited in. But it does make it feel like the area that they're exploring, the central kind of area, you've got your small town and you've got this park, feels wild and dangerous Yeah, in in a way that made me really appreciate it because it's three kids wandering this national park by themselves. None of them are older than the age of 14. And it really, it has a, a very unique 80s quality to it. It's similar to a lot of the 80s films we watch, but not a lot of the 80s films we do take place in the Australian park. So, right. Yeah. Um, I also would say one of the things that I think is is very good about this, and it, it, you know, a lot of this film is made out in the wild, out in the the, the national park or, or or such. But there's one scene in particular that I, I have no doubt was done on a soundstage, but it's so beautiful, and that is when Cody is at the swamp, the swamp set where he's first meeting Charlie and the blue light and the way the dock is coming, you know, the mm-hmm. way the camera has framed this shot of the dock coming towards the audience and the, the light bulbs along the, the dock as well. And it is just breathtakingly gorgeous the way that it's it is presented. Spielbergian. It is. It is. Yeah, and it I really love is. it. And you're absolutely right. It is done on a soundstage, um, so much so that one of the things they said is, you know, if you look really close, you'll notice that they are on a dock, but you don't see the water right. below the dock. It's just fog. And they said, we put it on a soundstage, we put it in the fog machine, and we could control the lighting of it because it's very difficult to light, you know, at night by the water in the wind. You know, that scene is really interesting, too. Again, direction, editing. I think the acting's really good. You know, uh, for kid actors, I mean, Henry Thomas is... At for the time, oh sure, just a phenomenal '80s kid actor, and I don't think the I, either of the other two are particularly bad either. I think they're no. they I, they are believable as kids. I mean, every, and that's a great thing too is they are kids playing kids. There's no thirty year olds trying to be teenagers here, right? And that's no, really good. I and I particularly like the the little the younger girl who's playing Jane, and I mean oh, just some so of the good. some of the quips that they give her and some of the lines like. Mom, can you get herpes from French kissing is what she does for a distraction. Yes. No, Jane's Jane's amazing. And and I actually really like how they treat the kids in this. But it's both a script and a dialogue thing where they say things that kids would say uh, and they're curious about things that kids would be curious about, but they're also still naive about the same subjects, which is a really unique quality for for this film. Where, you know, they're at an age where they're curious, but they haven't experimented with stuff. Right. Well, and and Cody's even at an age where when they first go to Devil's Knob, Cody's comment is, I haven't been there since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, you're a kid. You're still a kid. But that's that's the line he gives. He's 14. And so in his mindset, he's talking about being much younger. But I, I, you know, he's he's old enough that he refers to being a kid. Right. Yeah. I mean, we could we could get nitpicky with extra good stuff, but uh, Rafe, what didn't you like about this movie? 
I'll just sit back and relax and uh, let you go off for <laughs> the, the the chair is the floor is yours, sir. I all right, folks, we're getting into spoiler territory here. I have watched this film several times since you first introduced me to it. I watched mm-hmm. this again two, three days ago. Okay, in preparation for this, I still do not feel like the ending makes any sense whatsoever. And what sense I can get out of it doesn't fit the rest of this hour and a half movie. It's like 87 minutes of this movie all goes together. And then the last three minutes is like, what is going on here? And I still don't get it. Yeah, I agree with you. 100%. Let's put a pin in that until we get to the ugly part, because that's part of the ugliness of this film. Okay. Are there other stuff that you find to be bad? Uh, well, and it's a, it's, a, it's a nitpicky thing. But it is one that always that stood out to me both times I've watched the film or all three times I've watched the film, which is, you know, when when we get to the climax of the film and people think Cody has died and they are they're draining the pond to try and find Cody's body. This is the lowest point of the landscape. Where is that water going that they're draining the pond from? We see a hose and we see water coming out of this hose. And I'm going, you look at that shot. It is shown from the air, from the sky multiple times. Where do they think they are draining this lake to go or this pond to go? You know? (laughs) Wow. That, I mean, one, you're absolutely right. (laughs) <laughs> Two, that is about the most nitpickiest nitpick I've ever heard. You know, but, you, but, you are, but you're but you're correct. I'm going to be a little bit more general. I don't think the character of Wendy, uh, who is the older girl who is essentially Cody's age, is particularly well written. She's not yeah. bad. But when you are competing with a character like her younger sister, Jane, she pales in comparison. If you asked me to describe her character, I don't really think I could. She seems sort of like a good girl who is along for the ride. And so much of the third act depends on her figuring stuff out. Sure. That it kind of comes out of nowhere. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a writing, that's a script thing, uh, not, not the actresses. Uh, right, right. No, the performance is good. The character mm-hmm. is weak. And I, and I, I mean, it's, it's kind of goes hand in hand with what I'm saying about Cody. Like Henry Thomas's performance is good, but Cody is overwritten. He is, yeah. he's, he's too much. He's, he's too perfect. It's, he doesn't need a team. You know, right. like we look at all these other kids on bikes movies and like, I mean, the the kid who would be king is the perfect example of this, of like, he needs that team. He needs right. that team to help keep him in check. He needs that team to help him accomplish what he's doing. Cody doesn't need anybody. It's true until the third act when, yes. when, when Cody disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yes. All right. What is the ugly for this film, Drew? And I'm going to let you kick it off. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is tricky because there's quite a bit of casual racism in this film. Yes. And I am not an expert in Australian culture. I'm certainly not an expert in Aboriginal cultures. I call it casual racism because I don't know how much of it is how the characters are written or the implications of the film. You know, you don't understand. If you are making a film set in the South in the Civil War, you have racist characters. Right. It doesn't necessarily make it a racist film when the characters are racist. Right. And it doesn't it doesn't help that Cody is explaining as they are traveling through Devil's Knob that this is where all the black people used to live and blacks don't come here because of frog dreamings and he keeps using that term blacks which apparently right. is not how Australians talked then that was something that was put in to make the film more accessible to American audiences. Yeah. Which doesn't really make me feel particularly good about, you know, us. Yes. They also use another term for the aboriginals that is a, a considered a slur, which I will not repeat here. Correct. Yeah. Um, so whether or not they include that is a racist thing or if that is how the people of that town speak, right. that is different. But what is generally racist is the, the magical Negro trope. Um, right. Which, which is the part that I have a problem with because I don't feel like it fits in this movie. Correct. This is one of those, it feels sort of like a, a misdirected liberal progressive thing where they're like, hey, we're, we're totally going to have the Aboriginal flag. Cody's going to have one on his bike and a pin on his jacket. Uh, and we're going to have them in here and we're going to show them as human beings. But other than one character, there's no speaking parts. Um, right. And again, they use the, the magical Negro trope, which is 
this mysterious character who can explain everything. So, yeah. And the ending of it is really confusing because part of it feels like they are trying to show that this space is a part of a frog dreaming. That it is part of the... Uh, uh, but I know I can, I can see you getting ready to, to interject. I'm not defending this. I'm saying that's what it appears that they're trying to do. Right, and I and I don't argue that, but we've gotten 90 minutes into a movie that they've never actually explained what frog, what dreaming, frog dreaming is. is. Yes, agreed. Cody has these lines at the end that goes, Charlie Pride is the Khadija man. There is a frog dreaming. And I'm like, great, then tell me what it is. Yeah, I know. And it's a really sour note for what is a really interesting idea and a really interesting kids' adventure film. Yes. To make that switch in the last moments, and then the movie ends, and you're like going, wait, what? Uh, and there's a magical event that happens, a right. supernatural event that happens to support those claims, but they don't explain it. And I do get that part of what they're doing is trying to make the theory, trying to trying to make it that there was, the Donkajin was real. Because Cody still had that leg of lamb hanging out in the lake, and that's what gets pulled on. That's why the truck gets pulled on and everything starts pulling apart because it's connected to the truck. And that's – it took me three viewings of the film to finally put together that that's what's going on there. But the idea is that, okay, you solved the mystery of the Donkajin, but look, haha, you didn't because it's actually a real thing. Right, that exists in, in a frog dreaming in the dream time. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like – that episode of the X-Files where they prove that there is no Loch Ness Monster and then the last shot of the episode is the Loch Ness Monster or whatever the, the lake creature is. Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, it wasn't handled well. And that isn't referenced in the director's commentary in a, in a satisfying way. I was really hoping that there would be more to it. But yeah, agreed. I agreed. The And it, a kid's adventure, it's sort of like if the Goonies suddenly had a Pacific indigenous person show up at the end of the Goonies and, and kind of explain why this land was sacred to them the entire time and, and it changed the ending. You're just going to be like, wait, where did this come from? Agreed. Well, it, and not even explain it, but just show up in, you know, authentic garb and disappear or whatever. Yeah. Like, it just, it's so mind-bogglingly strange. It's a weird choice. It's a weird choice. And in part, like, I, I kind of want to applaud it in the intention, but that, you know, we, we know about the road to hell and intentions. Right. Um, yeah. It just, it, it, I feel like were someone to remake this film and they could probably do a much better version of that. But anyway, that's, yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. So that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, then next we usually talk about which kid were you, Drew, of the kids. And there's not many to pick from here. Yeah. Which no, were you three. the most like at their age? Well, clearly, I wanted to be Cody. I mean, I really, really, really wanted to be Cody. Cody is like MacGyver Jr. In and I film. and I want you to share with our listeners at least one of the attempts you made at something because you wanted to be like Cody. Yeah. So I definitely built grappling hooks in, in an attempt <laughs> to explore a. A water like we had it. We had the intercoastal waterway, which is about a mile and a half from my house. And so hiking there with my other kid friends to me was like going into the outback and going to this lake. I never attempted to go into the water because it is an, an area that a lot of speedboats drive through. So, yeah. you know, not not a great, great thing. But again, when we d discussed Goonies, I really wanted to be a gadget person. I just don't have any sense of engineering whatsoever. I, I, I understand physics as a concept. I can do basic science stuff. But when it comes to actually replicating that sort of stuff with gadgets, you can't do it. So um, there's a lot of time spent in my friend's garage looking at ways to put together stuff. Really wish I had had a, um, a torch of some kind to make things, but that was probably a good idea. Uh, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wish I had a concrete way that like, but his gadgets are, are just cool. And like, I remember thinking like, I'm a bit of a coward too. So like, I wouldn't have jumped from a cliff into a lake. That's ridiculous. Oh Why would gosh. you do that? <laughs> uh, I I definitely rode my bike on the train tracks in our home area, uh, thinking about this movie, um, which is of course a bad idea. Kids, if you're listening, never ride your bike on the train tracks. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to be Cody. Absolutely wasn't. So I was more like Jane, which is. 
uh, constantly asking inappropriate questions and kind of driving adults nuts. So. Fair. That's fair. I and you, Rafe? probably <laughs> have I mentioned I haven't mentioned yet this episode how much I hate the segment. Um, I know. I know. I, I probably was Wendy. Mm-hmm. Like forgettable, underdeveloped character. <laughs> If I wasn't Wendy, then I was Jane making annoying comments and, you know, irritating the adults. Yeah, there, it, w- there's a lot of kids in this movie, but none of the other ones have names. Yeah. No, I wasn't anywhere near Cody Walpole territory, so I, I didn't create grappling hooks or anything like that. That's that's not yeah. where my, my talents lie. All right. It is time to rate the movie. And for those who may have forgotten since we did this last time, uh, we rate the movie on a double axis. We talk about how good the movie is, rated on a scale of 1 to 10, and then how good of a kids on bikes movie this is, rated on a scale of 1 to 10. So uh, if you need a reminder of our previous ratings, uh, I rated The Lost Boys with a 9, The Kid Who Would Be King with a 9, The Goonies with an 8, Super 8 with an 8, Attack the Block a seven and a half now and then with a six. And I think I really undersold that one. That one has stuck with me better than I expected. Uh, and then BMX bandits with a five. You know, it's interesting. I was looking over this as well. Uh, Cause the only reason we're listing this is it has been four months since yes. we have done this. And it's, and it's kind of fun for me to look at this and, and try to figure out what I think of this movie in comparison to the other ones. Uh, Attack the block for me, eight and a half, super eight and eight lost boys, seven and a half. Goonies, seven and a half. Kid Boo would be king, seven and a half. And I actually think I would drop that down some. Oh. Um, now and then, a seven. I think I would bring that up. And yeah. BMX Bandit's a six and a half. Yeah, now and then, I've watched it three times last year for the podcast. And I thought, I'm never going to watch this film again. It stays with I, you. And I legitimately, I had a wonderful conversation with somebody about that film recently. And I love talking to women about it as how is an influential film for them all right so all that said drew how would you rate frog dreaming aka the quest aka go kids actually if you really want to there no uh, no, if you no go no, on I to don't. wikipedia it lists all the other movie titles <laughs> from around the world this movie has something like nine or ten all right i fully recognize that this movie is problematic and i fully recognize that this movie has problems but like a lot of those other films, this one also sticks with me. I am going to give it a seven because it meant so much to me as a kid. And uh, I think it's a well-directed film, though it is a misguided film, especially in the parts that we have already discussed. So I would have, if those had been removed or done better, probably rated this higher. But because of that, uh, I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. Seven? Okay. How about you, Rafe? I, I don't have the nostalgic connection to this that you do, because I, again, I didn't see it for the first time until literally like two years ago. Uh, and it is a problematic film. It does have, you know, the casual racism, as you said. It does have this ending that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It is well-directed. It is well-edited. It is well-acted. So I, I, I probably would give it like a six, but that ending just, mm-hmm. I got to drop it some for that. So 5.5 for me. Okay. That's yeah. fair enough. I, 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 I don't hold that against you. I recognize in the same way that I don't think of Goonies as being as great of a film because it wasn't as important to me as a kid. I, and I get that. Yeah, I completely understand it. Now, the second this side is of where this it gets interesting is the kids on bikes movie side of things where we rate how uh, well of a kids on bikes movie we think it is. And again, just to review our ratings from the past, uh, uh, The Goonies was a perfect 10 for a kids on bikes movie for me. Now and then was a nine. The Kid Who Would Be King was an eight. Lost Boys and BMX Bandits were both sevens. Attack the Block was a six and Super 8 was a five. And for me, Goonies a 10. Attack the Block, 8.5, Super 8 at 8, Now and Then, 7.5, BMX Bandits, Lost Boys, and The Kid Who Would Be King, all 7s. Yeah, I don't feel that this is as bad as probably you're going to do, but I still (laughs) agree that it is not a perfect Kids on Bikes movie, and I'm going to give it a 5. You're going to give it a 5, okay. I gave Super 8 a 5. And I gave mm-hmm. Super 8 a 5 with the argument that it wasn't really a kids on bikes movie because Charlie is the focus of that movie and we lose all of the secondary characters. Like pretty much once he becomes – once we follow his storyline, everybody else falls into the background. We didn't get enough of the other characters. It was a kid on bike movie. This is a kid on bike movie. 
But I think Cody Walpole is far too self-sufficient to be interesting. It goes back to that whole, I think he's too perfect. You don't think that argument can be made. So I'm going to give this a four for a kids on bike movie. I don't think it's a very good representation of kids. I think I think you nailed it with, with what you said earlier about it being a kid venture film. Mm-hmm. But as a kids on bikes film, no, it's not. It's not. Not for me. Listen, I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> and I also, and I just need you to say this, it is important to still discuss this film because sometimes discussing what something isn't is just as important as what something is, giving us an idea of uh, kind of where it sits. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. That brings us to everybody's favorite part of the episode, which is the draft. So for those who have forgotten or uh, haven't been with us before, the idea is that we are assembling a Kids on Bikes team. Each of us are assembling our own team made up of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Now, we have already reached the point of the podcast where we have more kids on our team than we are allowed. So what will happen is when we get to the end of the season, the end of 12 movies, we will cull our team down. But for now, I have selected on my team Mikey from The Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block, Edgar Frog from The Lost Boys, Adult Roberta, Dr. Roberta from Now and Then, Charles from Super 8, Betters from The Kid Who Would Be King, and Goose from BMX Bandits. Uh, and on my side, from the Goonies, I have Data. Uh, I have Moses from Attack the Block. I have Grandpa Emerson as my adult from The Lost Boys. Now and then I've got Sam, Super 8. I have Alice. Kid Who Would Be King, I have Kay. And from BMX Bandits, I have Judy. Now, Rafe, normally, whoever selects the movie, the other person gets to select first, which is fair. Right? right, and you have so badly wanted me to pick this movie, so you get to pick first, which is why I think you inserted it where it should have been my pick. <laughs> but for those who listened to the last time we had this happen, what happens now is we have a roll-off. Yeah, so we each have a D20. We're going to roll. Whoever rolls highest is going to get to select first. All right. Ray, for you, do you, do you have your D20 at the ready? I do. All right. On your mark. All right. Get set. All right. Roll. Not bad. I got a 19. I got a 15. Uh, Rafe, which character? No, I, I think we should basically say, I feel like there's really only four characters to choose from, right? You have Cody. Right. You've got Jane. Yes. You've got Wendy. And I think you got Gaza which, as the adult. Um, you don't get Charlie Pride as a pick? Yeah, we have, in the same way that you don't get Merlin, uh, you cannot have a mystical or supernatural character. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously Cody is the best developed out of all of these characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is, as I said before, he is a know-it-all, fiercely independent, courageous to a fault, well-connected, and doesn't fit on my team whatsoever, so Mm -hmm. I am not picking him. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going with Jane as the youngest member of my group because I think she fits the dynamic of my group the best out of the four choices that we have. I don't really need another adult with Dr. Roberta. I kind of am attached to her. I don't think Gaza's well-developed enough to to make him a contender. So I'm going to go with Jane for my pick. So clearly I'm choosing Cody, right? (laughs) I already have my adult. Wendy, I don't find to be as an interesting character. But I got to say, even if you had chosen Cody, and I admittedly would have been heartbroken. (laughs) I would have been heartbroken, but Jane is clearly the superior choice in this group. Uh, As far as a character, and as far as an insert character for a team. And, you know, we talked about calling down to seven kids and one adult. I kind of feel like I might be shocked if, if Jane doesn't make the cut. Um, as far as wisecracking younger sister is a pretty amazing character and one who, if we were to make this team, you know, we are going to stat this based off of the second edition rules for kids on bikes. Who knows? We may get a group of players together and actually run our teams through an adventure. Jane would be so much fun to choose, but I am going to choose Cody. And can you imagine the dynamic that she's going to have with Pest or with Betters? Oh my gosh. I mean, don't if get me wrong. I'm, you've got you've got Cody and you've got Data. That right there is a, a, a sitcom that needs to be made. But right, <laughs> right. Well, the interesting thing too is my setup for my team is it doesn't really have a leader. 
Right. You know, like Moses is a reluctant leader at best. And Cody is not a leader. No. (laughs) Cody is, to use the terms of first edition, well, (laughs) Cody would be an adventurous scout, but he's definitely a loner weirdo as well. Uh, Yeah. So uh, I think think my team of seven is really going to be a team of four and a team of three. Uh, (laughs) But yeah. And if I'm or a team mistaken, of four and a team of two and a team of one with Cody going off yeah, and doing yeah, his own. Yeah. You're you're probably right. Yeah. So there we go. All right. <laughs> that ends the film portion of our conversation. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about how to gamify the quest. Are you finding everyday life boring? Finding work becoming stressful? Are you looking for something to distract yourself? And maybe learn something while getting distracted? Try tuning in to We're Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Alex Underbaki, and me, Christy McCann, where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and more. All things that most people would consider weird. Which is what we're all about. You can stream We're Distractions Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you need a distraction, we got you. Welcome back. We are now going to discuss how we can gamify the film so that anyone can play an RPG session inspired by the movie, regardless of the system that they are using. First thing we always want to discuss is the first thing that anyone should be discussing when they're starting a role-playing session is what to do with our session zero. What kind of conversations do we have with our players before we begin playing? So this usually will include things like uh, the genre of the film, the ratings, uh, as well as what you don't want to include in the game. So Rafe, I've thought about this, and I got a couple of questions that I would I would propose to players based off of this, because this is a very unusual film. Again, it is a quest narrative, it is a mystery narrative, but it's also one in which there aren't really antagonists. So the first question is, are you okay with there being a quest without any active antagonists? Yeah. And this is going to lead to a style of play that is not traditional, I, I think, if they, especially if they are okay with that. Are you okay, players, with ambivalent resolution? I think that's where you as a DM have to deviate from the source material. You have to come up with something far more satisfying than this film does. I have several endings for a role-playing session, regardless of the system, that are going to be infinitely more satisfying. (laughs) Uh, I think if you were one of my players and I were to present you with, are you okay with uh, ambivalent resolution, it would be a resounding no. And I think you'd be correct in that. But it is something to be worth discussing. Yeah. This is an important one because this story, even though it's not done well, is tied to the indigenous culture. Would you be okay with creating an indigenous culture rather than using an existing one? So creating a fake indigenous culture rather than misrepresenting, even in a home game, one that already exists. I think that's an important conversation to have in the zero session absolutely and then the next one is would you want this session to run more towards the mundane or towards the magical so there's a lot of hinted at uh supernatural elements in this that which turn out to not be the case and then suddenly turn out to be the case uh, when no (laughs) one's looking so i would ask the players if if they had an idea and I, i would hope that my players would say Surprise us? I think that's the correct answer. Yes. that's. I wouldn't even pull this out in a zero session myself, but I, I find it interesting that you would. So, I, Well, I might not, but it's at the same time, the idea behind a zero session for a game inspired by something would be the assumption is that they would have seen a film. They'd True. watch this film and said, we want to play something like this. So assuming my players do know this film and they say, we like this idea. There's something there. What can we hold on to? What can we pull from it? I would go, you know, what you want? And and I, I think the correct answer is, you know, surprises. Yeah. Anything else that you think that we should discuss in our session zero? I, I think that indigenous culture one is the most important one. And I Agreed. think you do need to have a conversation about how that indigenous culture is viewed by the townspeople. You know, Agreed. like what is yeah. what is the level that the the group is going to be tolerant of negativity towards that group because you don't want to cross over that you can you can establish animosity between the town and the the indigenous culture without becoming offensive 
and it, you yeah. need to make sure that your players aren't going to be offended, that you don't cross that line accidentally. Personally, I don't book with a lot of racism in my games right. to begin with. However, I do think it adds an interesting element if there are going to be characters in the town who are combative to the the, the indigenous people. So, right. Yeah. No, I, I think maybe the Zero Session would be in the same way that Kids on Bikes creates a town. I would do the same thing, but maybe run some questions about the indigenous folks who, who were there before uh, anyone said. Unless the players themselves. I mean, you could run this as everyone is indigenous, right? right. Like it, you don't have to be. Cody Walpole doesn't have to be the, the white protagonist. No. How about some truths? Um, and for those who are, are joining us, a truth is something that if, if you as a game master have a loose reins on your game. And this is something that I have enjoyed a lot more as a game master of the last couple of years, which is rather than planning everything out from the get-go and spending a lot of time, because I know inevitably within a session or two, if not the first 10 minutes, the players are going to do something that is something I've not planned for, and they're going to go completely off the rails, and uh, I'm going to find myself scrambling. So I don't use a lot of modules. I really like to have a almost kind of yes and attitude towards role playing, but I do like to do a certain level of prep work. And to do that, I have certain truths. And a truth is something that no matter what happens, this is always true. And it adds as a guide for gaming. So as long as I know that one or two truths are always going to be true, when a scenario changes, I at least know how to write that scenario or put it in the right direction to aim it towards the truth. Right. And this helps us make sure that we are running an adventure inspired by the movie that we're talking right. about, not directly ripped off from the movie that we are. Yeah. And, you know, no one about. wants to play this movie. Like, you know, it's, you've, you've seen it. Just, right. What's the point? But you want to be inspired. So in, in order to play something inspired by that, regardless of the system you're using, I mean, here's the basic one. You got to have a hard to get to location. And right. that has a mystery to solve. The mystery is solvable. But the answer might not be what you're expecting. And might not be satisfying. <laughs> and might not be satisfying. I think it's it's safe to say that the mystery is potentially deadly. Not dangerous, deadly. Right. I think to be true to this film, the mystery needs to be tied to the local indigenous people's folklore, possibly involving... I, I, I would use the term a cryptid of some kind. Right. But, you know, it's, uh, something supernatural from these either real or made up indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to take this one from now and then. No adult will give you clues that you want. Now, they might give you clues that you need, but but you're never going to ask a question and get the correct answer. Now, I know that's a general DM's trick, but in this movie... Like, a lot of people are very hand-wavy towards Cody when he's looking. And even those experts who give him ideas never really point him in the right direction. It's almost they give him information that he might have asked about, and he can cross it off the list like a clue board. But no adult is useful in any way, shape, or form in this film. Right, but uh, in now and then, it is intentionally not useful where they are Correct. trying to hide a secret. And here, at least if you go by the, the tone of the movie, it's that the mystery that, that the your characters are, are facing has kind of fallen off the radar. It's the, it's become such a, a, a local, a thing. It's just, it, it's, it's everybody's so used to it. They don't even think about it anymore. Correct. So they don't, it's not that they, they can't give the clues that you want. It's that they just don't have it for the most part. And the few who do are going to be kind of cryptic about it. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's just that um, the only reason I bring up now and then is it's the only other movie that we've discussed where looking for answers specifically doesn't give you anything. Now, the right. motivation for why it doesn't give you anything is different. But in quite a few of these films, there are no adults at all. Like there's right. no no adults in Attack the Block, for instance. There's no adults in BMX Bandits that are even remotely useful. Right. Um. Yeah. So, do you think anything else that 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 has to be included? Here, here's so I'm gonna I'm gonna deviate from truths because I think you hit the truths. But here's here's the problem I have with this this movie as a whole, and I have a solution. So I'm gonna offer a solution to the problem. Okay. Something I said earlier on when we were recording, which is we don't get a real reason why Cody becomes so captivated by this mystery. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So from a hook standpoint of hooking the players into the adventure, that doesn't happen in this movie. We right. have the the thing happen and there might be a creature there and we don't know what it is. And Cody finds out about it because his friend dies and everybody else writes it off. And for some reason that we're not given, he becomes obsessed with trying to find out more about this. So here's my solution for a hook. And it's almost taking this it, – it, it's almost that thought of you had earlier if somebody remade this, which is I would start the adventure and I would I might even do something more true to the movie. But I would start the adventure with the fact that there is a Cody Walpole-type character in the community. He is the kid who is, you know, a know-it-all, who is fiercely independent, who is courageous to a fault. Everybody knows him. Everybody comes out for his antics because they know it's going to be impressive. And he's dead. And now the players have to find out. That's the hook. What killed Cody Walpole? How did he die? What happened to him? And now there's an emotional hook to try and get them through. Now, he doesn't have to be dead. We can follow the movie to that degree. But the 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 twist in the film, as far as, like, Cody is dead, that's a moment that changes everything. That's the moment that we see – I mean, hell, that's the moment we see Gaza kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. And he's been hands-off this whole time, and suddenly it's like, oh, he really was attached to Cody. You know, and I think – if you get that with the players and you make part of the zero session, uh, you know, what was your relationship to Cody type thing? And then you you have the announcement at the beginning that he's dead. I think that gets the players and the, the characters much more engaged with the source material. The reason we don't have Wendy or Jane throughout the film is because they don't have the same interest in the storyline that Cody has. And you pointed out earlier, we don't know why Cody has that interest. So, so I think that's a hook. That's a different approach to this film that, that would engage the players a lot more. I love that. And thinking about it, the only thing I would change is I would make Cody's ultimate fate a mystery. Sure. In that I would make Cody has disappeared. And Cody's disappeared for a certain amount of time. Now, that is still being very true to the film. Right. Because if you have a character who's perfect and your players are imperfect characters, then it's difficult for them to recreate because, you know, Cody had the gadgets. How are we going to get to where Cody went? Cody could do this, this, and this. He could travel across the town quickly. How are we going to do this? Cody leaves some very big shoes to fill. Yes. And so when you have something along the lines of this kind of 100% character, how do you follow suit? I really love the idea. But it also... Rafe allows us to do something that you and I both love is that ticking we get a ticking clock (laughs) because the only thing the game master will let you know is you only have X amount of time to find out the answer. I'm not going to tell you why. Right. But, and it could be that, you know, maybe Cody is dead and in a certain amount of time, something will happen and you'll never find out why, you know, maybe, uh, or maybe he's still alive, but in a certain amount of time, he won't be. To, to kind of bring it back to the film. Uh, I think that is the perfect way to keep the spirit of it without falling into the trap of, you know, one of you has to be Cody Walpole and the other two have to be Jane and Wendy. You know, like that, that's really not going to be exciting for, for uh, players unless they are role players. It's from a stat block. It's going to be really challenging. Right. Especially because if Cody's around, he can do everything. So what, mm-hmm. do, I, what do you need me for? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I think that is great. And really, like, I'm very excited to kind of play around with that. Yeah, yeah, I liked that idea. Because I, I was thinking about it while I was watching the movie. I was like, that's the, that's the hook that the, the audience needed to draw the audience in a little bit more. Either that, or instead of making a, a remake of this movie, they need to do, like, a Cody Walpole is awesome TV series where every week he's, you know, creating new things and investigating some mystery and he's just awesome. Right. Well, they did that for adults. It's called MacGyver and right. uh, and or uh, Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I know. Deep cut. Deep cut. Um, one of the things that we do talk about is the set pieces, things that are you want to include again to get that feel. I know it's difficult to set this up in a fan, you know, if you're doing it in, in a completely different system. Uh, so your mystery location, that national park, it has to be accessible and not easy to get to. I've already mentioned that, but you just right. you do need a location that is remote because you don't want a large population stumbling on it, right? So like the, the mystery is, is there. And almost every single 
kids on bikes movie that we've looked at with with the exception of i think maybe attack the block has that situation where it is the the main location whether it be beneath arcadia oregon or uh wait is it arcadia no where's the where's uh, uh astoria astoria thank you arcadia is a world that uh <laughs> released a module in a game that i i wrote for anyway i don't know if i can talk about yeah i can talk about that but you know, the attack the block, it's in one building, but like you don't, as opposed to like, for instance, uh, Kid Would Be King, where you have to travel to a mystical realm right. <laughs> across your island. Right. Uh, I, I do feel like even though it wasn't handled well, you do want to visit the indigenous people's space um, to get an understanding of kind of where they're coming from. And this is not one you have to include, but I really like the idea that, um, and this is something a game master has to decide. If you do go the more supernatural route, I do like the idea that maybe the location that you're in could flip and become part of a frog dreaming or access to the dream time where there is something about the location that is supernatural in nation and uh, in, in nature. And so that the, the laws of nature are different. And while that's hinted at, in the last three minutes. But, but what is a frog dreaming? But, you know, uh, here's I'm going to give you this challenge. Go on to Google and type in define frog dreaming, and all you get is references to this movie. So, um, <laughs> at least in the first 20 searches. So it's it's definitely something that they're really not clever about. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not a lot of set pieces. You could, you could do some things, but let's talk about systems of play. Yeah, what would we play this with? Kyle, clearly this is a kids on bikes game. But is it because my, my one question is, is it though, if you are making the threat deadly? Because you specifically said on those truths that there is a mystery, the mystery is potentially deadly. That's not, that's deadly. It's not a kids on bikes thing necessarily. It is now. Second well, edition true. rules, my dude. True. We have I'm- combat systems now. We have injuries. Yeah. And, and here's the thing too. I mean, you can listen to kids on bikes actual play. It, it, it's a fault of mine. That when I run when the many games that I have run for you with kids on bikes, I am less interested in putting your characters in peril than I am putting them in situations that I that feels almost nostalgic and kind of fun for kids to be in. Um, but the game is set up that you could have deadly consequences, uh, and I think that's something that should be put into play. Yeah, kids on bikes is always going to be you know any of the games where you play juvenile characters. You know, it's set for Dungeons and Dragons again, following the same rules with low-level characters, with especially not high stat blocks or modifiers. Boy, this is a game where Call of Cthulhu works perfectly. Isn't it? This uh, this is, of all the games that we have picked, of all the movies we have picked so far, this is the Call of Cthulhuist. Yeah, agreed. I think this would be a really good one. Um, and I know that we go to these three systems, but they are three very disparate systems, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, we talked about Star Wars, right? Like, you could still go to the kids steal a ship and go to a distant planet where there's something on the planet that people in the solar system don't go to this place either because of this moon. You know, like, you go to a moon, right? Like, and there's something on the moon. There's a lot of different ways of doing this. But one of the things I think we get a chance to discuss here that we don't normally get is because there is the presence of indigenous peoples, this is a good time to look at games created by indigenous creators uh, and native creators. And there's a couple of them. There's not a lot. Right. There's certainly not a lot, but there are a couple out there. So, you know, Coyote and Crow, that system kind of blew up Kickstarter. Um, I know it was over a million dollars. It did great. It's getting fantastic reviews. But because the creators of it are of Native Americans, then I feel very comfortable saying that is a game that could probably handle this very well. Edregor, which is a fate core system game, um, is made by native indigenous creators. And there's another one called uh, Las Arboles by Mercedes Acosta, which is your characters are getting lost in the woods. Uh, I haven't played it. I'm thinking about picking it up on drive through just to flip through it. But I think you could probably tweak that. One of the things that's interesting about it is there are seven or eight scenarios built into the game that you could run through. So it's not designed to be a sandbox system in the same way that Coyote and Crow is or D&D or anything like that. And Wraith, there's another thing that I find interesting about this game. If we skip your brilliant idea about folks looking for Cody, but you did want to play as Cody, you could run this as a solo game. There are solo games out there that ask a series of questions, like journaling games, 
Uh, there's one called Mythic that I haven't gotten a chance to play. Um, I don't do a lot of solo games because if I'm going to spend the time role-playing, I, I do like playing with friends, but I also completely understand and appreciate how these games work. So I think there's a way to to do both. And what would actually really be interesting is have someone write questions for another player so they could be still solo, but it would be assisted solo playing. So right, behind that. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. All right, Drew, I think that does it. I think we have uh, torn apart the quest, a.k.a. Frog Dreaming. A.k.a. Go Kids, a.k.a. Spirit Chasers, a.k.a. <laughs> oh, Mystery of the Lake, a.k.a. The Lake of Mystery, a.k.a. Yeah, there's, there's All right, a lot. so join us in two weeks for our The Quest intermission, where we'll discuss our second opinions and what we might have missed about the film the first time around. We'll go over listener emails and communications. We'll chat about what's grabbed our attention in different crowdfunding uh, and I will select our next Kids on Bikes film. We, we, we only get two more each at this point. Oof, we kept saying six. Rough. That was not six. That was seven. This is eight. That means we have four left. So we each only have two left. So we'll be announcing those next time. Uh, if you have opinions on your own about anything we've discussed today, you can join in the conversation, which we want to hear from you. We want to be able to read those messages on our intermission. Drew, how can people get in touch with us? Well, they can email us at the never say die podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a Facebook group, uh, Never Say Die Cast. You can find us there. We are on Twitter at Never Say Die Cast. Right. Uh, yeah. And so like, that's how they can get in touch with us. And we, again, we do want to hear from you. Yes. Uh, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song. And thanks to Megan Daly for our wonderful show's artwork. And remember, even if your protagonist is a know-it-all who is fiercely independent and courageous to a fault, but everybody else is not. Never say die.